Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to Great Women in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Lisa Estrada, Chief Compliance Officer of Fresenius Medical Care in North America. Lisa is Senior Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer for Fresenius Medical Care in North America, a virtually, vertically integrated company focusing on delivering the highest quality of care to people with renal conditions. Through its network of 2,200 dialysis facilities, outpatient cardiac and vascular labs, and urgent care centers, as well as specialty pharmacy and laboratory services, manufacturing and distributing dialysis equipment, disposable products, and renal pharmaceuticals. Lisa oversees the compliance functions for these business lines in the US, Mexico, and Canada. Lisa joined the company a little over three years ago after a 15-year career as a private practice attorney focused on healthcare regulatory and enforcement matters. During her legal career, Lisa frequently represents Fresenius and other large healthcare providers in government enforcement matters, internal investigations, and regulatory matters. And she wanted me to note that she is supported by an amazing team of compliance professionals. And given that I am one of those compliance professionals uh, reporting into Lisa, that makes her my boss. So I felt like I had to comply with that one. Lisa, you started out your career in politics. What was the impetus for you to become a healthcare lawyer and specialize in compliance risk areas? Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me. And thanks for that question. Um, I think it probably starts with the decision to go to law school, which quite honestly was my elaborate scheme to avoid going back to work following the birth of my daughters. <laughs> um, so I always think of myself a bit as the accidental healthcare lawyer. Um, I was fascinated by law school. I had um, had 10 years between college and law school, and I was one of those older students who was always, you know, light bulbs going on over my head. Every time we talked about something, I would say, oh, wow, that's how, that's why the world works that way. And so I was one of those geeky law students. And at some point, I got really fascinated by legal ethics. We had two professors at my law school who taught legal ethics, and one of them taught them from a rules-based perspective and one from an ethical perspective. So while some of my classmates were memorizing the model rules of professional responsibility and preparing for a multiple choice exam, I was in the ethics-based class watching To Kill a Mockingbird and keeping a journal about ethical dilemmas for lawyers. Mm -hmm. um, and this led me to write a law review article about a case involving an in-house lawyer who became a whistleblower and filed a False Claims Act case against his own client. And I really wrote that article because I was most interested in the ethical issues that it brought to the fore. But in the course of writing it, I really had to dig into the False Claims Act and its history and the policy rationale and, and how it was being used and so on. Um, and later that year, when I was interviewing for a summer associate position at, at one of the big law firms in Washington, D.C., um, in fact, a big law firm that has had at the time and still has a very active healthcare practice that frequently and at the time was representing Fresenius in False Claims Act matters, 
um, I got into a long discussion with one of my interviewers about the False Claims Act, and the rest is history. I joined the firm as a summer associate and eventually went on to lead its healthcare practice. So interestingly, and, and now where I sit as a compliance officer, it was it was my interest in ethics that led me to be a healthcare lawyer that led me to be a healthcare compliance officer. That's great. Thanks for that. We often have folks approach us about getting into healthcare compliance, especially new graduates. What's your best advice for them? You know, I think from my experience, that 10-year period that I had doing something else was really valuable. Now, everybody can't do that for 10 years, but I do think it's important for everyone early in their career, really at the start of their career, to look for opportunities to really learn what makes people tick, how business decisions are made, how large organizations operate. Um, I think my years in politics and what I learned there about reading people, predicting behavior, how you persuade people to support or oppose an idea or a candidate, um, those are the things that really prepared me to be a chief compliance officer because it's really about those things. It's really about change management and causing people to want to act in a particular way and to want to do the right thing and to, to walk the talk. Um, and so the, the very specific, the things you can learn about the risks and how to manage those risks and controls and what compliance programs look like, those are all things you can pick up by being a smart person. Um, it's much harder to develop the skills around the people part of the job. And so I think it is important to really have both of those things. And earlier in your career, if you can have different experiences, I think it positions you well. Great. That makes a lot of sense. Now you spoke to us a little earlier about um, going to school in two phases. And I have to say the thought of returning to school now really makes me queasy. Um, and in addition to what you've already mentioned, what motivated you to go to law school while raising a young family? Well, um, my dad was a college professor and he taught criminology. And um, I think I was probably always drawn because of the way he raised me. We engaged in a lot of debates about policy issues and fairness and justice. I think I was always drawn to law school, um, but quite frankly, I was quite stubborn at a young age. You might find that surprising, <laughs> Mary. <laughs> um, and I thought it would probably make him entirely too happy if I went to law school right out of college. So I didn't do that. And instead okay. went into politics, which I think was a good experience for me. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, you know, at some point, um, as I was thinking about now I have two kids, I can't really go out and just be on the coolest campaign, fly to whatever state or city is having a campaign that I'm interested in. I didn't really want to become a political consultant. I really liked the, I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie, so I like the action of campaigns. Um, and so, as I said, it was really my elaborate scheme to keep from going back to work to start thinking, now should I, I should go back to school um, and I learned that there's no math on the LSAT the exam to get into law school. <laughs> um, and that was really why I chose that instead of business school. And probably because um, I had sort of changed my mind about the importance of making my dad happy. Um, at that point, my dad had been diagnosed with cancer. He was doing pretty well. 
Um, but I felt differently about making him happy. So I went ahead and I, I took the exam and I started applying for law schools. And that was after the birth of my first daughter. Um, and after I took the exam and I was choosing between law schools, I realized that I was going to have a second daughter and she was due on the first day of the school year for law school. <laughs> so, um, so I, it, it, I deferred. And during that year that I deferred, my dad, um, felt he, he got to the point where he was really at a place where he was close to death. And it was very sad and traumatic, but the good thing was that I was able to be there um, with him at his deathbed. I had a long time to talk to him. And, you know, I um, had the chance to tell him at a point when he really wasn't able to communicate um, that I was ready to swallow my pride and that I was going to start law school um, in a few months and that if he had the opportunity to help me from above, I was not too proud to take it. And, and he gave me, um, really all he could do at that point was he gave me a thumbs up. And that was sort of my dad's signature. He would give a thumbs up to, to people a lot. So I went ahead and started law school the next August. Um, it was really hard. My daughters were two and one. Um, I, I didn't realize how hard law school was going to be. I didn't realize that you had to prepare to be called on every day. I, I, all these people were doing outlines and forming study groups. And I was like, just keeping my head above water. Um, and so uh, honestly, by the time I kept saying, I'm going to study for the exams soon. I'm going to study soon. And it didn't really come until Thanksgiving that I finally, um, was able to sit down. I had two kids. I had my husband. We, I did Thanksgiving dinner and, and the Sunday after Thanksgiving, my husband took the girls and said, now you can study. And I got out all my books and I put them down in front of me and I thought about it. And I said, this is impossible. This is too hard. It's okay. I have two small kids. No one's ever going to blame me if I if I stop this and I just say, this is too hard for me. And so I closed up my books and I decided to turn on the TV and there was a news show on talking about black Friday and the, the sales from Thanksgiving and how that had gone. And they showed a video from a shopping mall and it was a little bit, the camera was a little bit focused on an escalator and down the escalator came a guy who looked just like my dad. And as he got closer to the bottom of the escalator um, he, I said, that doesn't look like my dad. That's my dad. And he looked right in the camera and he gave a thumbs up and, um, sorry. Um, I get a little teary sometimes when I think about this, but, um, I, uh, I, I knew right then that I had to, I had to finish law school and I had to power through it. Um, and it turns out I was able to later confirm that it was B-roll. I, I called my mom and said, mom, what did you guys do last year after Thanksgiving? And she said, Oh, we went to that mall over by the Pentagon. We were living in DC at the time. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things. I'm not a particularly religious person, but it was, it was a message to me that this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, and the, and the path that I was supposed to be on. So that is both why I went to law school and why I finished law school and how I ended up here today. Thanks, Lisa. I, I love that story and I was hoping that you would share it. And I think it's a great one for many reasons. And um, as you indicated, something that I've said on um, the podcast before is 
whether you believe in a higher power or not, um, if you are focusing hard on what you really want and you are looking for opportunities and taking them and just doing your best, um, life will lead you where you're meant to be in your career. I strongly believe that. And I also love the fact that um, you, when I see you on a day-to-day basis, you're very much, um, you know, uh, cerebral. Like I, I think of you as very strong at what you do technically, you know what you're doing. And then to hear you say, um, law school was actually kind of hard. Um, and, 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 you know, you had the additional um, pressures of, of being a mum at the time. But that was really nice to hear as well, that um, for someone who was so put together on a day-to-day basis to know that uh, law school wasn't super easy for you um, as well, uh, it was, was great to hear. Thank you for that. Anytime. Um, You now head a compliance department for a company of well over 60,000 staff, um, a long way from where you've come with those books spread out in front of you um, before finishing law school. What do you think has been the key to your success? I would start by saying I think the jury is still out on success. I think that um, for me anyway, I'm one of those people who is always looking for the next um, success, looking at continuous improvement. And, and um, so I am very pleased and happy and proud, frankly, to be in the mm-hmm. position I am in as a senior executive at a company that I, I really feel strongly has um, a powerful mission and an important mission. Um, but I think that there's always the opportunity to, um, to strive higher and not necessarily as far as the position, but to get better at this and to get better at being a compliance officer, being a leader, um, and helping to, to enable my team. Um, I would say that, you know, that really, I think what has brought me to where I am is, um, a focus of always wanting to get to the why to really dig into things beyond the, this is how it's supposed to do, be done, or this is how the books tell you to do it, but to always be getting to the why and then using that why to fashion a practical approach. Um, people who write books about how to do compliance often have never been in the shoes of somebody really having to deal with uh, a big organization and the business pressures that, that are a reality. And the struggles with getting folks' attention, frankly, and other things. And so all of those realities have to um, be built into a real practical approach. And if you get to the why, you can produce a practical approach that both manages and addresses the risk and also meets the needs of the organization. Um, I'd also say that I'm always open to learning, resetting, rethinking um, the approach we've taken. Some might say a little too much I do that, but I think that, um, and maybe it's back to the beginning of this question, that I'm never quite sure that I'm done, that I'm fully baked, and there's always some way to tweak and improve things at the same time as being focused on keeping it practical. I think that's right, and I think that um, it certainly describes my observations of you. I feel like when um, working on your team, it's it's not enough to just sit on your laurels. Like we've always got to be thinking about how can we be doing this better? How can we be taking our compliance 2.0 program into a 3.0 status and focus on um, other priorities such as culture of integrity initiatives and embracing innovation and cutting-edge practices and compliance? 
Will you tell us more about the importance of this and how everyday compliance officers can best advance in these areas? Sure. Um, I think that innovation is, is my real passion. Um, and it might seem odd because I don't think that compliance and innovation are all that often mentioned in the same breath. But if you're working in a company that needs to grow and needs to prosper, they need to innovate. And um, compliance needs to not just support that innovation, but I think that compliance needs to enable that innovation. And we should go from thinking of compliance as a support function to an enabling function, um, specifically focused on helping the company to meet its objectives, including objectives around innovation. And to do that, um, we have to innovate internally. The compliance function itself has to keep up with the expectations, really thinking about a digital mindset, really thinking about the fast-paced nature of business and how do you affect culture change in that environment where people are pulled in so many directions. You've got to innovate. The old idea of throwing up some training or sending out a training in a, in a webinar or in an email um, and checking the box that you have trained people, I think in today's world, in today's environment, um, you, it doesn't work. And you've only checked the box. You haven't actually moved the dial. And so I, I know that you know this because this is part of what I ask you to do is to mm-hmm. really be thinking deep thoughts about, look to other areas. How do we train salespeople? Um, how, how do we, what kind of training techniques do you use to, um, really get change in an organization and bring those to compliance? So that inward innovation is important, but just as important to me is really thinking about, um, and I, I know you're probably tired of, of hearing me say it, but how we can be the department of how instead of the department of no. And not thinking of ourselves as a checkpoint that people have to come to and get through in order to innovate, but that we're really part of the innovation process and thinking about how to innovate while minimizing risks and to think about things differently through the lens that we bring a regulatory lens. Um, I think that's all part of our job and it's what makes us valuable thought partners and business partners to our business colleagues. Absolutely, and I'm, I'm certainly not sick of hearing um, that department of how um, versus the department of no. In fact, it's something that I would like to bring into our branding at some stage for the department, so it's not at all getting old. Great. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> we have an employee um, resource group at work, which is specifically for women, um, and at one event, Lisa gave a talk about how we should do away with the fairly entrenched concept of biding your time and going through the traditional rites of passage for promotion at work. Lisa, could you elaborate further on the subject and why it's important to you? Yeah, I think it might be a little broader than just thinking about promotion. I think I think about it as opportunity. Um, Sometimes those things are tied together. You have to be promoted to get opportunity to do something, but I don't think they have to be tied together. And I think when you think of it as promotion, which is something that someone else does for you, as opposed to taking advantage of opportunities or asking for opportunities or, or tackling opportunities that lie in front of you, even though they may not be technically part of your job. Um, 
I, I think that is something that allows women and anybody really to be very empowered and to, um, to, to take control of their own career. And I guess what I talked about at that, at that meeting was really about, um, I think that women often are, in, are more inclined to be rule followers um, to say, okay, this is, this is the hierarchy. This is the line. Mm-hmm. I think I talked about how um, if somebody, if I go to the Starbucks and somebody and I accidentally go out of order, I feel just mortified that someone might think I'm not following the rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I think that it's a hard thing for, for women, especially at least for me, um, to think about going, coloring outside the lines a little bit and, and saying, I know this is a part of my job, but this is something I'm really interested in. I think I can handle that challenge. Will you give me the opportunity to show you that? Um, that's the kind of thing that just stepping up and, and asking for things, being not take, having the courage to ask for things that may sound, um, make you sound aggressive or make you sound like you're really overly confident in yourself. I think women are less inclined to do that than men. Um, obviously there are all kinds of things that push in the other direction. I'm not saying that there aren't institutional things that sort of push against women getting opportunities, but I think to start anyway, to own our own power, to be willing to step up and ask for things that may be outside of our, uh, our, our strict area that we think we can handle is a, a good way to start changing that culture of wait in line, wait for your turn um, that I think a lot of women struggle with. Yeah, that's a good one. And I, I saw Jenny O'Brien from um, United Health talk on something similar at the HCCA recently. And she um, twigged a thought in my mind, um, which was apparently a boss of hers had said to her at one stage, Jenny, why aren't you coming to me to, to be asking me for things? The men come through my door all the time and they're not even half as qualified as you are. Why are you not asking? And she was making up a lot of excuses. And, and it, the thought occurred to me that I've never really done that. I've, I've sort of thought about things that I might immediately need. So if I need a, a resource in a certain area, I'll, I'll ask for it. Um, so things that I can see immediately in my mind. But in terms of development, it's kind of a scary thought, really. And I think, for you know, you mentioned it can come across as a bit aggressive. But I guess I'll, I'll put you on the spot, Lisa, and ask, if I came to you, um, you know, in the future and I said, hey, I've been thinking about my career prospects, I, I, you know, can we do some career mapping together? I would like X. And you think, oh, Mary, this is not, this is not quite, you know, uh, uh, you know, your alley for now, in, in my opinion. I, I think the confirmation from you would be that you wouldn't think less of me for asking, right? Even if it was something that I wasn't ready for, I shouldn't be scared to at least ask and, and let you know what I'm thinking and, and what I'm aiming for. Exactly. Um, and I think what I would do, consistent with what I said before, is get to the why. Um, so if, I, mm-hmm. if you came to me and you said, I, I'm interested in this, I want this challenge, and I think you're not ready or it's not a good match for you, I would still get to the why is that you want more challenge. And that is, mm-hmm. that's the messaging. And when I sit in leadership meetings where we do talent reviews, um, very, very frequently, most often with men, frankly, there's a focus on, okay, this person is not, this person is asking for more challenge. 
Um, we need to think about what other opportunities there are for that person in the organization. Should we promote them? Should we look for another opportunity? Because when they're coming and asking for challenge, it's suggesting to me that they need and want more and there might be a flight risk. If women are not asking for challenge, whether they're whether the challenge they ask for is one that they're ready for or they get it or not, but they're not signaling that they're not satisfied with with standing still and they want more, they're missing out on they're they're being viewed differently. Um, and it, that's it's not just women. There are obviously men who do the same thing, but I think it's more often women who find themselves in that position and and they sit and have talked to many of them. I do good work. I do excellent work. I do better work here, but, but no one notices it and recognizes it and promotes me. I think there's more to how you're viewed within the organization than how you perform your job, whether that's fair or not, it's a reality. And I think signaling that you are thirsty for more is an important uh, career move. Great. I love that. Thank you. What compliance uh, program management tips would you share with your colleagues in compliance? Yeah, I think about this a lot. Um, and we have, and, and we've really taken from a larger initiative at Presinius um, called Leading with Values. And um, it's really a leadership philosophy that's focused on serving leadership and I found one of the concepts I learned through leading the values is particularly useful as a compliance program management tip. And it's don't be a Pez dispenser. Um, in other words, don't think of yourselves or your program as the expert tellers regarding compliance risk management. Don't just pop out answers to compliance questions. Take the time to really understand business goals, to get to the why, um, and to help your business partners understand compliance risks. By doing this, you really empower your business partners to own their responsibility for compliance. And it changes your relationship with the business. It changes the way you think about your job. And I think ultimately it benefits the, the overall company with respect to, to really the effectiveness of the compliance program. Awesome. And the final question I have for you today, I know that you are a big fan of podcasts generally and not just uh, the Great Woman in Compliance podcast. What books or podcasts uh, do you suggest that women would find useful to have in their leadership library? I struggled a little bit. I knew you were going to ask me this question. Um, I have lots of podcast things and I have, I have books, book ideas, but it's really what, what has interested me most lately, I don't have like one book that I think is the Bible for women in leadership. I would say that um, going back to one of my original points about really understanding what makes people tick, um, I read a lot of biographies. Um, I really want to understand thought processes, motivations, what makes people tick. I think that is a helpful um those are helpful insights to have as you think about leading people because leadership is of course about leading people. If no one is following you um, and you don't understand the dynamic that is happening amongst the people who are following you, um, you can't be a good leader and you can go to a how-to book and you can read about brain science and other things. And I, I'm interested in that, but I think that I learn more from a reading standpoint and from a listening standpoint 
from um, books or podcasts that are really about like what makes people tick. Um, on the podcast front, I love Freakonomics. It's one of my favorite things because it blends together social economics, um, what makes people tick kind of blended together with the uh, economic theories. And so I, I, I recommend those kinds of story-based podcasts because they really grab my attention. The other one that I really like that speaks to my interest in innovation is a podcast called How I Built This, which I think is an NPR podcast and takes things like Warby Parker um, or Airbnb and it talks, goes to the founders and gives the entire story from the beginning directly from their mouth about the challenges, the fits, the starts, the, the imposter syndrome that they had along the way to building really impressive, innovative companies. And I think understanding what makes those kind of people tick is really helpful in a, in a business environment and, and as a leader. That's great. Thank you so much for your recommendations, Lisa. Well, that's all we have time for today. My closing recommendation is to invite um, our audience to take a look at the newly revamped Corporate Compliance Insights website for compliance news and resources. The Great Woman in Compliance podcast has a landing page and you can listen to our podcast there as well. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.